0: Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Hannah Sale. Today's show is about that golden era when Minneapolis was the flour milling capital of the world and how that flour boom went bust. We're talking with Star Tribune reporter Eric Roper, who wrote this story for us prompted by a question from a reader, high school student Nick Zilstra. Welcome, Eric. I'm a little bit sad about this question because I honestly hoped that Minneapolis might still be the flour milling capital of the world. Did
1: it, you not get the memo on that? Apparently it's over.
0: not. It was,
1: <laughs> it was, it was over a, 90 years ago.
0: <laughs> we're not the flour milling capital of the world anymore. Tell us why. Well, you know what? Actually, Let's run it back. Mm. How did we even become the flour milling capital of the world?
1: OK, let's go. First, let's go to the 1840s, right? So before we even have like Minneapolis proper, you know, the, the city that became Minneapolis is sort of beginning along the river. And really, the, the benefit of being where it was is that you have St. Anthony Falls and they had free power, free power for factories, right? They could take this natural drop in the Mississippi River and use it to power machines at sawmills in particular. So So there was lumber that was being floated from northern Minnesota. It was coming down and it was being sawed into lumber on the river. And we were growing hard spring wheat in Minnesota. I'm fast forwarding a couple of years, but there's hard spring wheat that's being grown in Minnesota. And essentially, when you pulverize this hard spring wheat, you would end up with germ and bran and endosperm, and they'd all kind of be together. And the germ is oily, so it would spoil. The whole thing would spoil. Plus, it was like got bran in it. So It was, like, not great flour. And, you know, historically, aristocrats in Europe could afford the real stuff, which was highly, highly processed – just endosperm white flour, and it was like this challenge: How does the consumer have access to that? And it was Minneapolis that basically, or Minnesota specifically, that invented our way out of that and became so prominent in doing so.
0: It almost brings a tear to my eye to think that Minneapolis could have been responsible for bringing pastries to the people by mm. by by having this flour that only aristocrats could have prior to this new method right. of milling the wheat.
1: Yeah, David Stevens said the mills. City Museum calls it the democratization of white flowers. Demo-
0: of white flour. Just what a beautiful moment.
1: So what happened was there's these millers in southern Minnesota. They're experimenting with new techniques and technologies on how to really process flour in a different way. And they come up with a method to get to just that white endosperm. And the folks along the riverfront, like Pillsbury and Washburn-Crosby, which became General Mills, they adapt these technologies and it becomes very popular because suddenly you could buy white flour, which had never been around before. And it was considered this prized thing And then when they start selling to international markets in 1880, that is the year that the boom begins. And this is a half century long reign over the world's flower market that centers in Minneapolis.
0: I like to think of us as being sort of like drunk on flower power. And the thing that really crystallizes this for me is if you go to the story online, you'll see this. There's a brochure, an illustrated brochure from the <laughs> from the Washburn Crosby Company, which later became General Mills. And the image is of this almost like demigodlike woman holding a medallion, a bundle of wheat at her feet. And in this fancy script, it says... The world is ours. I love that because, uh, you know, you think of like the world domination.
1: I think of Scarface, <laughs> his his catchphrase was "The world is yours." Uh, but close. That's what close. I thought when I saw close. that.
0: Close, close. But but I mean, we were just drunk on this power. The world is ours. We have. The fanciest flour everyone turns to us for right. their pastry needs. Yeah. So in
1: 1880 and 1881, the largest flour mills in the world get built along the Minneapolis Riverfront. So we have the Pillsbury A. Mill still there. And then the Washburn Crosby Mill, which is now Mill City Museum, is also still there. And this sort of just keeps going, right? And and basically by 1916, we hit the peak because this is during World War One, And now this flour is feeding Europe. So we're producing 20 million barrels of this flour in 1916. This goes until 1930. It's a big, big time for Minneapolis, and the city's population quadrupled in the decade after 1880. So just a lot is going on, and flowers are at the center of it.
0: I am picturing flower dust in the air, the the melodic hum of mills, children frolicking with eclairs in their mouths. There's
1: a lot of smoke in there, too, (laughs) and like smog and stuff, I'm sure. (laughs) It's like the 1880s.
0: Okay, well what happened? Who stole our crown? Yeah.
1: So this is the part that's hard to do in like an elevator speech or at a cocktail party. If, if people listening to this, we're going to give you the most boiled down version we can, <laughs> but man, is it hard. Uh, okay. Let's start. There's a couple different elements here we got to get into. So let's start rolling through them. So basically there's a number of things here that are Minneapolis has advantages that no, are no longer its advantages. The most obvious one that is uh, just sort of obvious when it comes to mind is electricity. Over time, the, idea of having water power that was free was no longer as necessary. But that's sort of a side issue. I think one let's talk about railroad rates, for example. We were getting special deals on railroad rates because first of all, the Mississippi River was considered a competing trade route. And then another one was that flour shipments were considered wheat, which was cheaper. So it was basically considered wheat just making a stop off in Minneapolis than having to pay the higher price of shipping flour. And these are the kinds of things that were controlled by an agency called the Interstate Commerce Commission. And starting in the 1920s, the ICC starts to eliminate some of these exemptions for Minneapolis. And meanwhile, you have Buffalo, New York on the other side of the country, and they are really well poised to take up the mantle on a lot of these things. So, in 1897, for example, to talk about tariffs for a moment, there was a tariff change that allowed wheat to be imported from Canada, milled, and then exported duty free. And, you know, we took advantage of that to some degree, but Buffalo really could take advantage of it. If you think about Buffalo's location, they're on Lake Erie. They have access to all the eastern markets because they're right there on, you know, they, they have access to the coasts right there. So they can get shipments from Duluth through the Great Lakes and then get them all to international markets. So they're much more well-poised to be doing some of these things. And as early as 1903, Washburn Crosby is building a mill in Buffalo. And the president of the company says at the time that it's due to freight congestion in the eastern market. But he says, he maintains that, of course, Minneapolis is and will remain the dead center of the world's milling. So he, so. he,
0: he jinxed us is basically yeah, what happened.
1: He, yeah, it, that was not true. Maybe at the time he thought it was true. But and I think the other, what that story illustrates is that it's our companies that are doing this expansion. So like as Buffalo grows, it's growing because of Minnesota. It's growing because of Washburn, Crosby, later General Mills and Pillsbury and things like that. So
0: a really helpful graph in your story demonstrates how much things changed in about a 30-year span in terms of how much flour Minneapolis was producing compared to other flour milling cities in the United States. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: So this sort of illustrates why we call ourselves the Mill City. There is, uh, to my knowledge, not another city that said, we are now the Mill City. Like, I don't think Buffalo quite thought it was the Mill City. And the reason, I mean, they and we're going to get into Buffalo in a second because they have a lot of pride in this as well. But in 1912 to 1921, on average, Minneapolis was producing 33 million pound sacks of flour in a year, okay? And Buffalo is producing 11 million, and Kansas City is producing 6 million, okay? So 33, 11, and 6. If we fast forward 30 years to 1947, Buffalo is now leading because they took over in 1930 as the number one producer of flour in the country, but they're producing 28 million sacks of this flour. Then Minneapolis is 19 million, and Kansas City is 19 million. So it's much more sort of evenly distributed than it was when Minneapolis was was really dominating the market.
0: We definitely had our crown snatched right off of our heads. But just to save face, Minneapolis in its heyday was milling more flour than Buffalo ever did in its heyday,
1: right? I'd have to go into the detailed by year estimates, but what is sufficient to say is that, uh, and we have historians saying this in the story, is that Buffalo didn't really become the mill city uh, in the same way. And this is Bob Frame saying this. He's a historian who studies, he's writing a book about this actually, is that, you know, they they didn't have a dominance over the market like Minneapolis did. So it wasn't quite the same.
0: Okay, nice. We're going to take that and run with it. So we we start to lose our status. What happens to the mills eventually in Minneapolis?
1: So most of them stop operating, although Pillsbury kept going until around 2003. But, you know, the riverfront became not really about flour milling. And the lumber, which we talked about, that kind of also faded away because they ran out of trees to (laughs) to send down here. And meanwhile, in Buffalo, you know, there's all these structures there that remain to this day, just like kind of how we have our historic milling structures. Buffalo also has, those. It's a much bigger part of Buffalo's skyline than it is in Minneapolis. And, you know, they, I think they had and still have a lot of pride in their milling history. For example, there's a big General Mills plant in Buffalo that produces Cheerios. And I was told when I was reporting this story that the slogan, my city smells like Cheerios, is like on T-shirts in local shops and stuff in Buffalo, which is kind of the only, it's a great piece of color <laughs> that I just like love to hear about.
0: No, I think that's absolutely adorable. I also think very, very bold to have any slogan that starts with my city smells like there are infinite number of ways that that could end. And I feel like a lot of rascals would happily take advantage of that.
1: Like if South St. Paul had done that <laughs> during its meatpacking heyday, <laughs> it probably wouldn't have been a great uh, no, slogan to have. Not
0: a good slogan. Yeah. So, Eric, I have to ask a question that I assume is on everyone's mind. Will Minneapolis ever again be the flour milling capital of the world?
1: no. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> no, yeah, of course not. I mean, basically, well, the, the first of all, the water power is like irrelevant or anything that made us kind of special is irrelevant. We have the corporate sort of entities in the in the region that still maintain that, even though they've kind of merged and stuff like that. Nowadays, flour milling capitals are really close to the population center. So like Dallas is a big flour milling capital, like outside of Los Angeles would be a big flour milling capital. So it's less about these places that become sort of hubs of that industry so much as where are all the people? We're going to bring the wheat there and then we're going to process it and bring it into the major major metro areas so i don't really think that we have any sort of leg up anymore plus like i don't know what the freight i I don't follow the interstate commerce commission but i don't know that we're going to get those deals back (laughs) We'd have to get so there have to be a lot of lobbying that gets done, I'm sure, to get those rates back because it sounds like we got some sweet deals back in the day. So, yeah.
0: Well, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to distill what is a very complicated answer into a nice little nugget that people could take with them to their cocktail parties if they want to. Just
1: print the story out and bring it to the party. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's the only way it's going to work.
0: People will love you. Yeah. You're going to make so many friends. It's
1: hard to sum this up in a small <laughs> conversation. So, yeah, just print it out, hand it out at the party. If anybody wants to know, just to take it out of your pocket and hand it to them. <laughs> that's the easier way to do it, I think. So,
0: Thank you so much, Eric.
1: Yeah, this has been fun.
0: All right. That's it for today's show. I will leave a link in the show notes to Eric's story, which has more details, some images and that graph we were talking about. We'd love to hear your feedback about this podcast or any questions you'd like to see us tackle here at Curious Minnesota. Send us a note at Curious at Also, the Star Tribune is looking for sponsors for this show. Do you know of an organization that would like to help support the Curious Minnesota podcast? Please send inquiries to advertising at StarTribune.com. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at StarTribune.com backslash curious. Our show is recorded at the Star Tribune's headquarters in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. And our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious.